Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on this uh, first Wednesday of March. And, uh, you know, it's the first Wednesday of the month when uh, we're sharing uh, this one o'clock time slot together. So happy March. We're turning the corner here and uh, in the series and in the, the world and uh, in the weather, hopefully. We are in part three now, uh, working our way through. Uh, for those who have perhaps missed parts one or part two, as Michelle said, either on the Academy, you can get it on demand on the Academy's website. Uh, at the Mentor ESQ, we have the uh, video and audio uh, replays of both of those. And you can also listen to the um, audio as a podcast. I'm also pleased to report that uh, very soon we'll be releasing the eBooks, uh, which is a PDF uh, eBook version of each of these parts of the series. So uh, I'll let you know when that's live, you'll be able to download it uh, from my website at the podcast website and uh, save it and it'll have all the information from uh, these webinars as well as the Q&As uh, to use as reference material. So before we get into today's topic, I just I feel that with all of you attending today, having this audience, it's incumbent upon me to talk about backgrounds when you Zoom. Uh, we've been in this pandemic using Zoom for about a year now, folks, and it's time that you stop using your uh, old wood panel corner basement that you're being sent to to do your work in Zooms as your backdrop. Uh, it is very easy to do a virtual backdrop. Nobody wants to see your house. If you're fortunate enough that you have a nice office uh, background that you can use, that's fine. Otherwise, folks, step it up, get a good background um, filter. It's really easy to do. Michelle or I or anybody else you know that's any way technologically uh, skilled or partially skilled can help you. Just find a photograph. If you don't have one that's decent, go online, download a photograph of a courthouse, ask your law firm if you can get an image of their website, of their um, logo, and you could put that up behind you. So I encourage everybody, it's much more professional when you're meeting with clients, adversaries, depositions, put up a uh, background. So um, you'll look a little bit more professional than being in the basement of your house, okay? So moving on to today, part three, we've already covered everything from the initial phone call, getting up to uh, filing and serving the summons and complaint. So in today's uh, CLE, we're gonna talk about, as it says in the title, your adversary, um, the preliminary conference, and initial discovery. Now let's talk about the adversary. This is when we as lawyers have the first opportunity to uh, get to know each other as adversaries in a particular litigation or case. What will happen is after you filed the summons and complaint and served it, it will work its way to the insurance company uh, and or directly from the client to a law firm to handle it. And you'll often get a call first from either a claims representative from an insurance company if you're a plaintiff's lawyer um, or perhaps defense counsel. And when defense counsel first receives the summons and complaint, either directly or from the insurance company, or when the insurance claims representative receives the summons and complaint, they're going to see the name of the plaintiff's lawyer in the law firm. So it's the first way that we all see who's going to be on the other side of the case. And 
I want to remind you all that just because we are in an adversarial pres uh, profession, uh, our area within our profession that is adversarial litigation, meaning fighting against each other in court, uh, in papers, in motions, in arguments, in advocacy, it does not does not mean that you have to be hostile to each other or difficult with each other. To the contrary, um, you are much better off being kind and sweet and nice to your adversary until unfortunately there comes a time where you may not be able to maintain being as kind and sweet and nice. It's important for your reputation as a lawyer being someone that you can work with. And it's also important that you remember that regardless of whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant or a claims representative, uh, you have a job to do, and we have to respect that each other has their job to do and do it as well as possible. And my philosophy has always been, which I encourage we all share, is that I give the insurance company representative and defense counsel the information they need to work up their file. I don't hold stuff back that you know they're going to get anyway. If they want medical records, if they want your theory of the case, if they want information that you can give them, um, give it to them. It's going to help them set the reserves properly, which is a way that on the defense side, insurance companies will earmark what they think the case may be worth at the end of the day at the top dollar. And if they don't set it high enough, that's a problem at the end of the day sometimes. So you want to make sure you let them know how serious your case is or potentially could be. If your client may not have had surgery yet, but may be a candidate, you want to make sure you let them know that right away. And so you need to have this initial conversation that will kick off after you file the summons and complaint or after you receive a summons and complaint. Now, on the plaintiff side, you will learn who your adversary is either by a phone call from the insurance adjuster when they get your claim letter or summons a complaint or a phone call or email from defense counsel, defense counsel once they receive the file from the carrier or the client and they see your name on the papers. Um, you'll get that contact by email or phone. And I encourage you, make sure to take that call respond to the call, respond to the email, try and get on the phone, try and have the initial conversation. Hey, what's going on? Yep, I'm handling this case. What can I tell you about it? Uh, what about defense? What's going on with coverage? Uh, where do you see this case? How, how's your relationship with the carrier? Are they gonna be difficult? Have that initial conversation with your adversary. Uh, get off to the right foot. It will make the litigation process so much better. There are many of you, uh, on this webinar right now who are either currently or have been adversaries of mine and we've maybe tried cases against each other or at least litigated and settled cases and you know from working with me that if push comes to shove you know i'm advocating very strongly for my client but i'm doing it in a nice way and i'm giving you and i've given my adversaries the tools to make them look good to their clients whether it's a direct defendant or an insurance company um, and giving them the tools to help get the case settled ultimately. So I encourage you to get off on the right foot, have those initial calls, regardless of which side of the V you're on in the case, try and establish a rapport and try and work together and cooperate. Look, I know in our profession, you've got some jerks on, on all sides, in all roles. And if that's the case, that's the case. And you can't deal with someone. I've run into some insurance claims reps that just are very difficult with me. Uh, for no reason early on. And so, uh, you know, once I file suit, I'm hopeful that uh, I'll have a defense lawyer that I'll be able to work with. Or oftentimes once you file a lawsuit, a new claims representative gets assigned, who's much easier to work with. 
So you do the best you can, but you should always make that first step to show you're going to be willing to work with them. You're going to give them what they need. And if they're not returning the favor, then, you know, unfortunately that's going to be the case, but it happens um, and you'll just deal with it. But at least you be nice until they give you real reason not to be nice. And then you can just be firm, let's say, uh, if need be. So that's going to happen when you get the complaint or the answer on either end of the V. Now, in the plaintiff side, as you know, that's what I represent and that's most of what I'm giving in my CLE. Um, once I receive the answer, um, there are certain things I need to look for. But the first thing is getting that answer. So a lot of times people ask me, what should I do? Should I move for a default judgment? Um, should I make phone calls? Should I make emails? I haven't gotten an answer in. Um, the the What you should do is before filing motions, uh, reach out. If you know who defense counsel is, reach out. If you know who the carrier or client is, reach out and say, hey, your answer was due. It hasn't come in. What's going on? Are, are you going to get it to us? Because in reality, default motions usually are not granted. Uh, it takes a lot to get it done. All right. And if someone ultimately shows up uh, to put in an answer, the default's not going to stick for the most part. So again, practically work it out. I will usually get, and as plaintiffs, we always get uh, a call or an email from defense counsel or a carrier asking to uh, extend their time to answer. For those of you listening to the podcast, the first attendance verification code is P-O-D-239. That's P-O-D-239. Oh. What do you do when you get a request for an extension of time to answer? Their answer is due, the date is today, they call you up, hey, sorry, can I have an extension of time? Well, the first thing you should do is always, always, always grant a defendant, uh, whether it's through a carrier or counsel, an extension of time. It's a courtesy. There's no way you can force them to do it anyway. Motions are going to take time. Give your adversary a courtesy. A lot of times, defense counsel and even carriers, they don't get the complaint until the day before it's due, and they haven't had time to do their due diligence in preparing a proper answer. So give them time. It's it's customary within our industry to give a 30-day extension, okay? Tell them to send the stip, just sign it. You should freely be giving 30-day extensions. Now, for my friends on the defense side, if you're calling up finally three weeks after the answer was due, don't ask for 30 days. That's not fair to do that to the plaintiff's lawyer. As plaintiffs, we have an obligation to move our case and tell our clients when they should reasonably expect the answer in and how it works and when they're going to have a conference and their case is going to move forward. So if you're that far behind, if you're several weeks late already, when you're calling for an extension, ask for two weeks, okay? Don't ask for a month. I personally get annoyed when that happens, when they say, can I get 30, 45 days to put in an answer when we've been hounding the carrier and hounding everybody for weeks to get an answer? You know, you can put an answer together certainly within two weeks if you're running late. That's reasonable. So try and give those courtesies, but work with them. I'll say to defense counsel, listen, can you just please do it in two weeks? You know, you're already three weeks late. I'm happy to give you more time, but work with me here. Um, it's always important to get off on the right foot, work with each other uh, when starting off on a case. Now, I know people are sitting there and thinking, well, you know, why would you want to give up everything right away to your adversary and tell them the theories and tell them everything about your case and let them know early on before you've gotten into stuff? And the answer is because 
they're going to know anyway. Okay. The, in litigation, there are no secrets. They're not allowed to be, things are not allowed to be kept back. It is a full and open discovery. You have to give everything over to the other side. Okay. You have to share your information. So delaying the giving of information that you may have already is just going to delay resolving your case. So give it up. Now, strategically, might there be some little tidbits here or there you may not want to share? That's fine. You can always do that. You can be strategic, but for the most part, give the medicals, give the injuries, give the theories. If you don't have all the medicals in yet and a plaintiff, as a plaintiff, tell your adversary, I don't have them yet, but once you get them in, start sending them. Don't make them wait. Um, you know, just start giving them things to move it. And defense counsel, you want to start receiving, reviewing, writing your reports, covering yourself, asking questions. Um, those are the best types of litigations when there's a back and forth between a defense counsel and a plaintiff's counsel. So in part one here, when I'm talking about your adversary, this is what I mean. Try and get off on the right foot. Try and work with your adversary. Most likely, we're all going to need favors from each other during the course of a litigation. And um, so what goes around comes around. And if you come across a jerk that's not going to extend you courtesies, of course, you're not going to extend courtesies to that person in return. So it's important that you put out the olive branch, whichever side you're on early on. All right. Now, when the answer comes in, what you're going to want to do is review it. Uh, you're going to look through a couple things right off the bat that are important. Most answers are just going to say admit, admit, deny, deny, uh, and then a bunch of affirmative defenses, and that's fine. But there's some things you want to look for as a plaintiff's lawyer in particular, and as a defense attorney, you want to make sure you get right in your answer. First of all, when it comes to ownership, all right, or specific facts that are pled in the complaint. You want to look for admissions or denials. Uh, when it's a property uh, case involving you're suing a building owner or maintenance company or uh, anything where there's an entity that you're suing, you want to make sure that you've sued the right entity. So you want to look and see if they're admitting ownership, if they're admitting maintenance, if they're admitting operation. So you're going to look through all of that because if they're not admitting it, you think you've sued the right owner, you're not looking at the answer carefully, and they're denying ownership, again, get on the phone, call up defense counsel and say, wait a second, I did a deed search, I had my investigator search, here you're denying ownership, um, what's that all about? Is this an error or just a cover your butt because you don't know? Or upon your investigation, is there another owner? Who is it? Let me know. All right, this is the first opportunity that you can work through things that can become big problems later on. You find out a year into litigation, you've named the wrong party, that's a problem. If you find out really early on, when the answer comes in, it's not a problem. You can amend your complaint, you can reserve it, get amended answers. So you're gonna look for that. You're gonna look for all these admissions and denials of dates, of facts, of cars, of ownership, companies and properties, uh, make sure that you lock it down pretty early on, okay? And because a pleading, if that's stated in a pleading, that's evidence. So if there's an admission and an answer of ownership or of anything, you can put that into evidence at the time of trial as legal proof. Uh, it's a pleading. Make sure the answer is verified by somebody with authority to verify it. Um, you'll see a lot throughout some of the paperwork I've attached when we talk about bill of particulars, uh, complaints, you see the word verified on them. Uh, documents should be verified either by a client with knowledge, 
on the plaintiff or defense side. So the plaintiff or the defendant can verify it, um, or a lawyer can verify uh, certain records if they've done their due diligence and they say that they have and they're familiar, uh, but it's not as best. Attorneys verifying documents should really only be done in a, in a last case scenario. If your client's being difficult, you need to get the filings in, but you should always follow it up with a, a your client verifying a document. So see if the answer is verified. If it's not, make sure you have follow up with your adversary and get it verified. Uh, find out who's signing off on admissions of ownership and all of that, okay? So you're gonna look for verification, admissions, denials, and then you're gonna look at affirmative defenses. A defense lawyer in an answer is required at the outset to set forth every possible defense that they anticipate raising at any time in the litigation, including up through a trial, up through and after a jury verdict even. The failure to list a certain defense within the answer as an affirmative defense may prove fatal to the defendant raising that defense later on in the litigation. The CPLR has sections on this. It's easy to research on when defenses need to be raised. So you can do your research. I'm not gonna to get too much into the weeds on this now, uh, but feel free to reach out to me if you have questions about it. But I've run into cases where I see them move for summary judgment to dismiss something and you look back through the answer and they haven't pled a defense uh, and they haven't done it properly. So that could be a problem and it could be a basis for denying their motion. And that could also be a claim uh, for uh, negligence or legal malpractice if you fail to plead uh, a viable affirmative defense. So throw them all in, plead them all, especially the affirmative defense of jurisdiction, either personal or subject matter. We talked about this a little bit uh, in part two about uh, preparing the complaint and asserting proper jurisdiction, all of that. But if you have not asserted it properly in your complaint, or if you have not uh, served props process properly on the defendant, then um, you may not have a proper jurisdiction. And you could go the whole way and get a verdict and your case can get thrown out because you never had jurisdiction. So you're going to want to look for All right. Now, when, so when the answer comes back, what you're going to do is you're going to go through those affirmative defenses. And if you see one, some need jumping on right away and some don't. For example, if an affirmative defense is that your, uh, the plaintiff uh, is, not, uh, is not a candidate to recover because they didn't satisfy uh, the uh, serious injury law as far as a threshold, uh, if there's an affirmative defense about you know, Article 16, all these ones are things that get sorted out when motions are made at the end not too big a deal. However, the jurisdiction ones, as I spoke of earlier, those you want to deal with right away. Because if you don't, they don't have to move on it early, the defense. And like I said, you can have a nice verdict in hand. And then they, the defense can then say, oh, by the way, we're going to appeal your verdict. And we're going to move to dismiss your whole case because you never had proper jurisdiction over us. So those you want to deal with, you want to look and see if they're asserting it. Sometimes they're asserting it improperly. And uh, sometimes they're asserting it properly. What you'll often see is a lack of personal jurisdiction affirmative defense. And what that means is that you didn't serve or it's alleged that as a plaintiff, you did not serve the defendant's uh, client or the defendant properly. Okay. So what we do as a matter of course is if we see 
an affirmative defense asserting uh, uh, lack of personal jurisdiction, we immediately sent a stipulation to the defense with a copy of our affidavit of service saying, here's a stipulation, withdrawing your affirmative defense as to jurisdiction, your affirmative defense number, you cite it uh, where it's listed and you give them the affidavit, that should be signed and returned as a matter of course. If you're on the defense side, you have the affidavit of service, don't make the plaintiff's lawyer go chasing you down. If that's why you asserted it, sign the stip. The stip gets filed and the issue's done with. Um, but if you're on the plaintiff's side, you don't let that go, you diary it until um, you get that stipulation signed. Now, that brings me to the materials. In the materials that you have uh, today, uh, I'm not going to share my screen and go through all of it, but you'll have a nice large 58-page PDF. Once you get through all the sponsors and my CV, uh, page 12 starts the materials that I've submitted. And the very first material you'll see is a sample stipulation withdrawing uh, the affirmative defense of lack of jurisdiction. Okay, so I'm giving you samples. Uh, for those of you who have been um, at part one and part two and at my SUMCLE recently, uh, you know that I like to give materials uh, that are not um, studies and chapters of books. I like to give templates, samples. These are from my cases, my files. Uh, this whole series is my playbook. So I'm giving you my documents, okay, that I've redacted where appropriate, but you are free to use them. Copy, paste. So I'm giving you stipulations. So there's one uh, in the materials for withdrawing the affirmative defense of jurisdiction. And we just had a case, uh, we have a case against the city and um, they did not notice us for a 58 hearing of our claimants. And we waited the appropriate amount of time and under uh, rule 50H of the municipal law, uh, if they don't notice you for a 50H hearing within a certain time period, it's considered waived and you can go ahead and file your summons and complaint. So of course, when we filed our summons and complaint, we just got the answer in from the city and they have an affirmative defense uh, that says that we did not comply with 50H by appearing for a 50H uh, hearing. So that also could be fatal because that the 50H uh, is a, a municipal statute uh, that's a matter of how you can appropriately proceed with a claim. And if you fail to satisfy that, that can become a jurisdictional defense. So the second item in the materials is a sample asking them to withdraw that defense uh, and why. So we've given that to you in the materials as well. Basically, any defense that you look through and you want to call out as not being proper, um, you want to do that when the answer comes in, prepare a step, put it under a cover letter, uh, email and mail it to your adversary so they get it both ways and diary to follow it up so you don't forget about it and stay on top of those issues. All right. So I've given you those. Now, when the answer comes in, usually attached to the answer is going to be demands. And it's going to be a stack of demands attached to the back of the answer. It's going to be a demand for a bill of particulars. It's going to be a demand for authorizations, a demand for witnesses, a demand for collateral source information. If you don't know what collateral source is, that's you know, outside benefits that your client may be getting, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, workers' comp, uh, disability benefits, that's all collateral source. It's a source of something that's benefiting them. Uh, 
that's collateral to the case. It's outside of the case. So you're going to get all these demands and you're going to want to start preparing your responses to those demands. You'll look through all of them, see what they are. There may be notices to depose your client in there with dates. You're going to want to look through that. You're going to want to put those dates in your uh, calendar, your diary, your firm calendar, your firm diary, your personal one. Um, those dates are rarely the actual date for the deposition, but it's good to put them in as a control date and as a reminder and also to see that um, they have noticed your client for a deposition. The defendants get the first shot at serving a notice of a plaintiff for a deposition in their answer before the plaintiffs have the right to serve a notice for a deposition of a defense witness. Now, everybody assumes in litigation that, oh, the plaintiff goes first and the defendants then go and they go in the order of the caption. Okay. Um, to my understanding, there is no such authority for that. And frankly, whoever notices first gets first bite at the apple. Okay. There, as common sense, it usually makes sense to have the plaintiff go first. That's usually how it's done. But there are times where they're dragging their heels uh, on the defense side and taking your client's deposition, you can push for their client's deposition. It's not a legitimate argument. As far as I know, if anybody knows differently, please uh, drop it in the uh, Q&A and uh, correct, correct me. I'm not too proud to be corrected, as you all know by now, if you've been with me for the last several seminars. So, um, also with going in the order of the names of the defendants. So if you're a defense counsel, you put in who you want to notice, whether it's a plaintiff, co-defendant, whoever, uh, because that's technically how it's supposed to go. All right. And when lawyers sit back on priority of depositions, um, that's nonsense. And um, in federal court, I've gotten lawyers called out on it, frankly, and we've moved ahead with out of order witnesses from the caption, whether it's plaintiff going later, defendants taken out of order. So you're going to look at all those demands and you need to start preparing responses. You don't just throw it in the file. You have to respond to these demands as part of the litigation and you're the one bringing the case. So you got to be ready to do it. So start working on it put as much information as you can in your responses that you have. If you don't have information, say, will be provided under separate cover uh, upon receipt. Uh, I'm gonna go through with you uh, in a moment uh, how we respond to some demands served on us by the defendant. But initially you're gonna look through, see the demands, see if they're there. Uh, diary to respond to them within 30 days is a fair period of time to have it completed and sent back. Um, take a look and see if your adversary is asking for everything to be sent via email or to be sent via mail only. Uh, sometimes, it's mostly pre-pandemic, I would see um, something in an answer attached saying that they do not accept service uh, via fax or email. So that's a way of saying, don't think it's proper by emailing me. You have to mail it. Now I see, frankly, the contrary. I see someone saying, uh, please serve all responses via email to this email address. Some firms have set up to receive all discovery demands and responses uh, through uh, some server and they set up an email for that. So take a look for that stuff. Make sure you're responding and serving uh, responses uh, to the right place. Otherwise, that could be a problem down the road when someone says you didn't serve it on me properly or I didn't receive it from you properly. All right. Then the very first thing we do in my office after we review the answer, we check off the admissions and denials, we look at the affirmative defenses and address those by way of a stip or a phone call or both. The very next thing we do is we file for a preliminary conference. 
known as a PC. The preliminary conference can be filed for once the answers arrive from all defendants. So if you only have one defendant and you get the answer in, boom, we file for a PC within 24 hours. If you're waiting on a few more, wait for them. The minute they come in, file it. Uh, the preliminary conference filing for that is your first real way of getting in front of the court of getting on the court's docket, being assigned to a part and a judge. For those of you who don't know what a part is, a part is a courtroom. So if you go into a courthouse and you're in Judge Silver's part, it'll say part number. Sometimes the judges change, but the part's the same. Many of us know part 40. There's a lot of well-known parts. Some parts are the automobile part. Um, so that's what that means. Your case will be assigned to a judge and or part once you file uh, your first request for judicial intervention, which in our case is usually a request for a preliminary conference. What I just mentioned, a request for judicial intervention is known as an RJI. The RJI is filed the very first time you're basically asking to get assigned to a judge or to a part to have something done on your case. Just filing a complaint, filing your affidavits of service, an answer being filed is not going to get you assigned to a judge and a part, usually not going to happen in state court. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. So what you wanna do is affirmatively say, all right, we want to get this case moving. We want a judge. We want a discovery schedule. We want a conference, whatever it is you want. Sometimes early on, if you need to file an order of show cause uh, before an answer comes in or before a preliminary conference happens, uh, if you need to file an early motion, if you're filing a motion as a defendant instead of an answer, which you can do, whenever you're filing for a judge to either have a conference or decide something or render an order, the very first time you do that, you file an RJI, okay? And you attach that when you e-file whatever it is you're filing. In most cases, we file the first thing to get on the court's docket is this preliminary conference request, the PC. So we will file that with an RJI. We want to get this on the calendar. We want a preliminary conference. Uh, and uh, it's our first time asking to get a judge or a court involved. So here's our RJI. In the materials I've given you, a sample preliminary request form, a preliminary conference request, request for a preliminary conference form, mouthful. I've given you a sample of that. I've also given you a sample of a RJI form. In the RJI, you'll see in the materials, you check what kind of case it is. In my world, it's usually a tort case, but you can put matrimonial, um, contract, whatever you're doing, uh, where you want to get on the court's uh, docket. So you'll file, file the RJI, the form self-explanatory to check off. You file that with a request for a PC. That's what we do in our state court cases once the answer comes in. By the way, I explain this process to my clients. You've heard me reiterate this, and it'll be a theme I'll continue about educating your client. Whether your client is a defendant in a case or a plaintiff, I believe good practice is giving your client as much information as possible. And what I do, if you recall in part one, at the outset, when a plaintiff is asking, you know, what's involved, if I start a lawsuit, I've never done this before, what do I have to do? How long is it going to take? I explain to them when I think we'll probably file something to complaint. 
how long it takes for an answer, that we usually give an extension, that we then file for a preliminary conference, that it then takes probably a month or two to get a preliminary conference date and or order, and then that sets forth a discovery schedule. And that's a way that your clients on both sides have an idea of the process in advance, okay? So um, we file for a preliminary conference in state court. Now, in federal court, uh, what will happen is you will be assigned to a district judge and usually a magistrate as well upon the filing of a complaint. And then usually once an answer is filed and all issue is joined, all parties in the litigation have appeared with counsel, in federal court, the usual practice is that the court will send out a notice to the litigants. And you also want to check in federal court uh, when the uh, magistrate and uh, district judge are assigned. You're going to want to immediately log into the court system, look up the judge and magistrate, download their local rules. Okay. You want to see who's going to be overseeing discovery. Uh, if there's not a referral order to a magistrate, it'll oftentimes go right to the district judge until it's referred to a magistrate. Do your homework look it up, find out, look at the rules, uh, and then see what the rules are. It may say within a certain period of time of an answer being received, you need to meet and confer pursuant to rule 26 of the federal rules with each other and generate a, um, a case management plan and order and submit it by a certain date and time. Okay, uh, upon which once it's submitted, they may have a conference with you or you could submit it and they'll order it in lieu of a conference. Uh, it changes depending on the court and the judge. So you're gonna wanna look that up, but usually you'll get some notice. Uh, and if you're not as familiar, reach out to someone who does a lot of work in federal practice, uh, reach out to me, reach out to uh, your adversary, they may know. And again, have that communication. Tell your adversary, yeah, I'm not sure on this one. Do we need to generate the, um, the, the case management plan in order? I haven't seen anything from the court yet. But before you make that call, so you don't look ignorant uh, when there's no need to, look up the rules, the individual judge's rules. It's very nicely available and downloadable in the federal court. Now, what'll happen is either in federal court with that case management plan and order, or in state court with a preliminary conference, a time will eventually come that you will be filling out a preliminary conference, uh, initial discovery and or case management form, which all is basically a discovery schedule, okay? And I've given samples of those in the materials as well. I've given you a federal court one and a case that I had with us in the Southern District with Magistrate Lehrberger. I just downloaded a blank uh, form uh, that he uses for the cases he oversees. Uh, so you can see that and give you an idea. The federal forms generally will look like that and they're fillable, it's great. I've also given you a couple of generic sample preliminary conference forms for state court. Um, one that's fillable in the medical malpractice part uh, and one that's been a general one that's been used. Um, before I get a lot of questions and emails on this topic of preliminary conferences uh, in the state of the pandemic, uh, I'm not the expert on it, but I will tell you what I kind of know. Um, the word on the street was that a uniform uh, preliminary conference order was going to be put into effect uh, within all of the states, uh, within all of the 
counties within the state of New York. Uh, and if not all the counties, certainly within all the New York boroughs, the New York City boroughs, to have a uniform preliminary conference order. I know this was part of one of Judge Silver's initiatives. I don't know if that's been in effect. If anybody has information on this, there's a lot of you that, out there that know more than I do, and especially about this, please drop it in the Q&A for all of us to get the benefit from. Um, so there's either a universal one. Um, there is oftentimes, again, what we've been doing is finding out after we file for a preliminary conference, um, we reach out once we see who the judge is assigned to the case. You'll get an alert when a judge is assigned to the case in the e-court system. And uh, we call the part and say, what's going on? Are you having preliminary conferences virtually, by phone, by Zoom? Uh, some will say, yeah, we're going to have it by phone. Some will say, um, you will receive a preliminary conference uh, form from the part and you will be given instructions to fill it out and resubmit it to be so ordered. Some will automatically generate one, which is great. You get an automatic one. They put in all the dates uh, for discovery and end dates for depositions and they serve it on you. So as far as I know, it's still a mixed bag. But one way or another, you need to follow up and either prepare one or receive one or request one because the preliminary conference order, once it is so ordered by the judge, it's an order. And it gives you dates that discoveries do. It gives you dates for depositions to be completed. So you wanna make sure you get there, get it done, get those submitted, okay? Time's running fast. I've got about 13 minutes left. There's a lot that can be talked about. I did give you samples, uh, so feel free to use those, look at those, but you can never go wrong picking up the phone, calling the court clerk, and asking what the deal is with PCs and preliminary conferences. There's still a lot of confusion, a lot of confusions even when you get a date. We've gotten a lot of dates for preliminary conferences, for compliance conferences. Uh, the day before when we're trying to confirm, is it on a Zoom, is it on a Microsoft Teams, is it a phone call? When we, we've gotten nothing, we call the part and they say, oh no, those are just control dates, resubmit an order. So if you don't know what's going on, you're not alone. Uh, most of us don't know what's going on, but you need to do it because you're going to move your case. And the longer you wait to file for a PC, the longer you wait to complete a PC is the longer you're going to have end dates and the longer you'll be able to put your adversary's feet to the fire to get stuff done. And we all want to move our cases. Uh, I believe defense lawyers, uh, more so than in the past, really want to move their cases for their clients. Uh, and plaintiff's lawyers, we always want to move our cases because it makes us look good to our clients to get resolution. And as you know, uh, on a contingency fee, we don't make any money until our cases get resolved. So for the life of me, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you've got files sitting around that you haven't filed for a PC on, that you're not pushing for discovery, you're not pushing for depositions, I can't imagine why you would do that. You need to bring in help. You need to get organized. Push, push, push. Move your cases forward. No one's going to come in and do it for you. You have to do it, okay? And if it's a case that you don't want anymore and that's why you're not moving it, then step up, reject the case. Reject it early on so a client can get new counsel uh, or if you've been retained, file a motion to be relieved, okay? Now, in the 10 minutes I have left, and again, starting at 2 o'clock, I'll do Q&As. We'll stay on. I try and get through almost every question that I haven't addressed in the lecture. But let's talk about initial discovery, all right? The reason the seminar, the seminar has the title Initial Discovery is because at this stage of the litigation, you're not necessarily sure 
what exactly you're going to need in discovery, what is available. There's, it's kind of like a process of peeling the layers of the onion away as a plaintiff and as a defendant. You want to get more and more information and you don't file your note of issue, which will probably be in part five, um, until um, you are satisfied that you've peeled away every layer within reason and gotten every shred of information you want that you can certify discovery is done. All right. Things pop up at depositions. You follow up with discovery demands. There's lots of demands. You can keep following up. You can keep requesting information. Lots of great stuff can be done in discovery. But initially, as a defendant, as a plaintiff, you have your initial boilerplate and tailored demands that you want to get out immediately. As a defendant, you want to get all your boilerplate uh, general demands out with your answer. Demand for bill particulars, authorizations, statements, witnesses, x-rays, you name it. Get those out with the answer. Get it moving. As a plaintiff, when you receive the answer, not only are you working to respond to demands, but you're working to serve your own demands. Now, what I've included in the materials are some of our generic demands that always get sent out very quickly after we receive an answer. You'll find in the materials a demand for experts, a demand for insurance, a demand for, um, uh, what else do I have in there? Experts, insurance, uh, we ask for a demand for uh, witnesses, for statements. Then we do a notice for discovery and inspection where you're always asking for videos, photos of your client, of the incident, of the area of the accident. It's always an ongoing demand. Um, the reason you get all these demands out early and you always say it's an ongoing demand is you don't show up at the time of trial and uh, they haven't given you a video and then they say, well, you never served us with a demand for one. You can say, oh yeah, I did. I did it you know, three years ago at the start of the litigation. Same thing with experts. Uh, you've served the demand. They have to give you their experts' disclosures before trial. Insurance, you want to know every insurance policy applicable to your case, not just the limits. You're entitled to policies, full policies, folks, in state and federal court. It's not enough. Usually we'll just get a disclosure of limits. You are entitled under the CPLR and the federal rule 26 for full insurance policies. You want to get them. You want to look, see if there's umbrella, if there's excess. Get out your demands. I've given you samples. Use them. Customize them. Modify them for an auto accident case. We have our standard notice for discovery inspection for construction accident cases where we're going to ask for subcontractors, subcontracts, uh, daily logs, work orders, uh, site safety documents. Um, so each case you may be handling is going to have different what I call generic demands uh, that's going to give you some initial information on the case that you want to look at. You have to give some thought to this before you send it out. All right, this is a, a premises case where someone tripped and fell um, in front of a, a building where it looks like they you know, redid the sidewalk. So in your notice for discovery inspection, very early on, in addition to asking for photos and videos and incident reports, you're going to want to ask for sidewalk repair records, uh, invoices for repair, um, contracts with any uh, sidewalk repair companies, 
maintenance and inspection records of the sidewalk. So get all this stuff out right away. This is what kicks things off. And then once you get those materials and you keep pushing for those materials, uh, which you have to have to have to have before you agree to sit down to a deposition, okay? As a defense counsel, you're not gonna wanna depose the plaintiff until you've received all the medicals and you've gotten all the information that you want before questioning the plaintiff, okay? And as a plaintiff's lawyer, you don't wanna start questioning a defense witnesses uh, without the benefit of all of these invoices and subcontracts and documents, because you're going to miss out on stuff and the opportunity to question on probative discovery in your case. So your initial discovery needs to go out fast. And if you already have experts on board, which I encourage, you want to get them on board early, early, early if you can, they're going to tell you things to demand in discovery and you're going to want to create that. So get something out, get the ball rolling. You can always supplement your discovery. All right. Now, and I've given you some samples, so there's no excuse now in your office if you're a plaintiff. Copy mine, send them out, okay? Oh, we did a demand for a bill of particulars for culpable conduct. You will always see an affirmative defense that it's the plaintiff's fault. Plaintiff's culpable conduct is what caused the injuries, not our client's negligence, the plaintiff's negligence. So you can do a demand for a bill of particulars, which they have to serve as to the culpable conduct of the plaintiff. Okay. And there's ways to use that as a deposition, at a, at a deposition of the defendant later on. You go through it. Did the plaintiff do this? Did the plaintiff do that? Because your lawyer's saying they did all these things and you check them off and cross them out. For those of you listening by a podcast, the second attendance verification code is POD192. That's POD192. Uh, while Michelle was doing the polls, I was looking quickly at some of the Q&As, which are great as always. And I saw that uh, some of you were kind enough to put in some answers, which is great as always. I can't reiterate enough how much of a community uh, that I feel uh, we are sharing, developing, and building through the series. I'm really excited about it. I've been having great one-on-one uh, -on -one Zooms, emails, phone calls with all of you, uh, and I encourage it. We can all learn so much from each other. I've been learning so much, and I'm the one giving the CLEs, and I keep learning more and more. So please continue to contribute in every way you can, and please continue to reach out to me whenever you want to uh, workshop any issue on any case. Um, I'm going to get to all the Q&As in about three minutes, but before I do, uh, the last thing I want to touch on is the bill of particulars. Now, there's a relation between getting a bill of particulars and the preliminary conference. For the last 25 years that I've been practicing, every time you show up to a preliminary conference, if you have not served a bill of particulars, defense counsel asks to adjourn the preliminary conference. Even when they show up there in advance, I haven't gotten a bill of particulars, let's adjourn the preliminary conference, we don't have any information. The court agrees, the law clerk agrees, they adjourn the preliminary conference. And what do you see in every preliminary conference order? A date upon which the bill of particulars must be served or a demand must be served. So I'm not aware of any legal requirement uh, that, um, that you have to serve a bill of particulars before a preliminary conference. However, knowing that in fairness to your adversary, they want some information about the case before showing up to a preliminary conference, get them a BP, even if it's the day before. All right. And I've enclosed in the materials a sample demand for a bill of particulars. And, and it was in a case where our client slipped and fell on a sheet of ice in front of a commercial building. And you will see I enclosed their demand and I enclosed 
our response to their demand, okay? Uh, and it shows how we respond to certain questions. A lot of people ask me, what do you say about constructive notice and actual notice? And what do you say when they're asking for codes and rules? And what do you say other than the injuries? And how do you list your injuries? Um, so I've given a sample there, again, for you to use and refer to of a bill of particulars in that case of a slip and fall on ice with a fractured wrist with surgery. Generally speaking, you wanna clearly and concisely list all the injuries. You wanna list if there's an aggravation of a pre-existing injury or an exacerbation in there. If you have surgeries, uh, the most serious injury in surgeries, you always put up first because that's the first thing that your adversary on the defense side is gonna look at to see the seriousness of the injuries. So I've given you a sample to use, all right? So please feel free to use that. But you're gonna to wanna to be the first demand on the plaintiff side you're gonna to wanna to start working on to give a response to is the, demand, is the response to the demand for a bill of particulars. Work with your client, get as much information as you can and get that BP out. It doesn't have to go with all of the other responses. Get that out first. I'm sure my defense colleagues uh, attending will agree that they like to get that as soon as they can, um, even if some of the other stuff is to follow. So work on the BP first when the answer comes in after you've dealt with the affirmative defenses. All right. So we're at the two o'clock hour. I'm going to switch to the Q&A. If you want to hang in there with me, a lot of good stuff comes up in the Q&A. Um, you can get another half credit if you stay on for another. I'll run for a half hour, so you'll be out of here by 2.30. Uh, the other thing that I'm happy to share is that um, I'm developing eBooks for all of these parts of the seven-part series. So I'll let you know when they're live, but the eBook will be the codification of all this information uh, in a PDF book form. And at the back of each will be the Q&A section of each ebook. So um, you'll be able to reference that. So it'll be a good resource, I hope, for everybody to use. I'll let you know when they're available. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast right now, uh, either uh, late because you weren't, didn't make it to the webinar, uh, come back and join us for uh, part four, which uh, will be the first um, Wednesday of April. And it's on the poster. Uh, Michelle will give you the date at the end of this, since I don't know it off the top of my head. And um, if you've missed the prior ones, you can catch them all on the podcast as well. All right, now we're going to the Q&A and uh, oh, April 7th is uh, gonna be part four. So I hope you all will come back. We're gonna talk about depositions, uh, everything about them, preparing them, conducting them, lay witness, expert witness, uh, objections, all that stuff. It should be pretty good. Uh, the hour will go fast as usual. All right, so let's get to the Q&A. I'm gonna start uh, sort of at the beginning. Um, there's 38, all right? At the SUMCLE, we had 111 questions. Who would think that that topic would generate so many questions? That shows how tricky SUM stuff is. Maybe this stuff isn't as tricky. We only have 40 questions, but maybe the number will go up. All right, so, um, you know, there's questions, how do you deal with the city with discovery? The, the city, the city, you've always got to give a little bit of slack because they've just got so many more, they're, they're overwhelmed, they're understaffed. Try and look on the answer, see if there's a specific attorney assigned, try and get up with that attorney, make phone calls, work it hard. Usually you'll get to someone that finally gets the case and then they'll work pretty well with you on ultimately getting you the discovery. They can get it. They have a hard time getting it sometimes as well, but motion practice is usually not going to speed things up and should be used as a last resort. Um, there's a question if the plaintiff needs to give a defendant authorizations to release 
uh, the plaintiff's records uh, for prior accidents without a defendant laying the ground or the foundations for those demand, even if it's different injuries? Is this a fishing expedition? Uh, good question. The answer is you got to give it up. Uh, defense lawyers are entitled that if they become knowledgeable, that uh, if your client had prior surgeries, prior medical treatment, prior hospitalizations, even if it's not for a part of the body that you're alleging in this case, prove it. They're going to want proof. They're not going to take your word for it. Um, so you may not know. So get those records. You know, we as plaintiff's lawyers, our clients don't always tell us everything. Okay, uh, they don't always tell us about all of their injuries. Sometimes they think a serious injury they may have is not related to the accident. Uh, and it turns out it is, and they don't wanna tell you. And you know, you have to grill your own clients, plaintiffs about all of their treatment and let them know that it's fair game, okay? And that generally if the records can be obtained, uh, you're gonna have to give it to the defense counsel. It's not a fishing expedition. Uh, after they have the records and at a deposition, if uh, you, a 15 year old record is addressed at the plaintiff's deposition where they had surgery on the knee, uh, when your case involves a wrist fracture and at the deposition that's made clear and then they start asking for authorizations for other treatment regarding the knee back 15 years ago, then you can object. But initially, you know, they have the right to see, you know, significant treatment, hospitalizations, surgeries of the like. Okay. Um, uh, someone put in here, and I thank you, there were, there were comments about the what to do with the stipulation for withdrawing the affirmative defense of jurisdiction. Uh, a lot of attorneys are saying they'll usually um, put that stip in there uh, when defense counsel is asking for more time, sort of a quid pro quo. Oh yeah, you want more time? Uh, make sure you stip out this affirmative defense and these other ones that are nonsense that you know don't apply. Uh, we'll prepare the stip, we'll send it to you, or you prepare it, send it to me. And I, and I do that quite often as well. So as a good quid pro quo, knock it all out at once. They want more time. You don't want to have to deal with a nonsense uh, affirmative defense. So that's a great time and good idea to do it all that way. All right. Um, someone uh, with a John Doe defendant in a motor vehicle case seeking the identity of the owner via discovery demand. They received a letter from the defendant saying there's no provision permitting this demand. They'll consider answering if phrased in an interrogatory. Never seen anything like this. Uh, I haven't either. Uh, I can't imagine in a motor vehicle case, a demand to identify the owner of the vehicle is not appropriate in any way, shape or form. So I push pretty hard on that. I would cover yourself with papers and say that if we have to go to court for this, uh, we're going to you know, ask you to pay fees and costs. We're going to let the judge know that you're in bad faith for failing to release this information. Um, that sounds crazy to me. Um, Someone's asking if the defense of lack of jurisdiction is waived if the defendant fails to move to dismiss within a certain period. My understanding as how to answer that question is no. Um, you cannot waive jurisdiction. You can't even stipulate to jurisdiction. I had a situation um, that I've mentioned uh, about proper venue where my it was a diversity case in federal court. My client was incapacitated, lived in the Bronx, his guardian appointed was from Virginia and the other defendants were in New York. So I brought the case in federal court based on diversity of the location of the uh, guardian being in Virginia and the other parties being in New York. And the judge, um, judge, um, I think it was judge uh, Kaplan, uh, called us out on it right away. 
had us come in for a conference pre-pandemic and said, Mr. Smiley, I'm not so sure you have proper uh, jurisdiction in the federal court here under uh, this. And defense counsel said, yeah, we're not so sure either. And I said, well, your honor, here's the research. I gave him the cases. I was prepared for it. Uh, but if I'm wrong and defense counsel is planning on moving for some moving to dismiss on that, let me see the case law. He said, all right, report back. Defense counsel reached out to me and said, yeah, we think you're good. Um, we don't th- we're not going to move to dismiss it. And uh, we reached out to the judge. They said they're not going to move. And we said we'd even stipulate. The defense was even willing to stipulate to jurisdiction. And Judge Kaplan, smarter than all of us, said, sorry, counsel, you can't stip to jurisdiction. You know, you can all agree. I could think that it's good, but someone wiser than all of us, if they determine after we go through all this and you have a nice big verdict that you want to protect plaintiff's counsel or defense counsel, you get a nice defense verdict you want to keep. Um, too bad. Uh, you cannot stip waive uh, jurisdiction. That is always an issue. Jurisdiction is tricky stuff. You don't want to mess around with it. Make sure jurisdiction is always dealt with early on. Okay. All right. Um, Someone's asking if you can have an affirmative defense withdrawn by notice to admit instead of a stip. Um, That's interesting. I haven't done it. That's usually not um, the way notices to admit are used. Um, If there's a basis within their affirmative defense, Oh, I think you're asking about a personal jurisdiction defense against, again, I don't, I don't see that as a way to be dealt with by way of a notice to admit. You just need to be sure you're buttoned up, you've done the research, and you yourself feel comfortable that you have proper jurisdiction. That's the best counsel I can give you. Um, someone's asking in the situation about the 50H hearing and serving a notice, does the city have to file that on um, the New York State ECF? Uh, I don't believe so. I think a letter is deemed fine. They serve you with a letter to appear that's sufficient notice. They don't, I do not believe that they need to file that. You know, be aware, a lot of us out here have misconceptions on what our obligations are to do with regard to electronic filing. I see a lot of letters filed on the ECF system, a lot of responses and demands filed on the state ECF. Um, my understanding is that's not appropriate. You're not supposed to be filing that stuff. And I personally don't appreciate it when I've had defense counsel send a letter that they file on ECF saying that we haven't given them something that we owe them when we have given them something. And now they filed some letter that's a public document on a case showing that we were somehow, uh, you know, uh, behind in complying when that's not the case. So that stuff's not appropriate. Um, ECF is really for pleadings, for motions, uh, for court notices, for conference filings. Um, stay away from discoveries, discovery demands, letters on ECF. I think you can get in trouble with that. And I don't think it's required for sure. Certainly not notice of things. All right. Um, Someone was kind enough to say there is case law in New York for priority for defense. If anyone has that uh, or you have the case law, please drop it in there. Uh, Let us know for defense counsel uh, so that uh, they can assert their priority in a litigation for depositions and so that I don't get an email asking for the information and not be able to provide it. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, if the defense refuses to step out an affirmative defense is the ne- or on jurisdiction or another affirmative defense, is the next option to proceed to a motion to dismiss? Yes, that's what you do. You move to dismiss it. Exactly. Okay. Um, what else do we have here? A lot of questions about jurisdiction. I think I covered that. I just covered don't e-file your demands, responses, and BP, and especially don't file your BP, folks. 
there's lots of restrictions about e-filing in state and federal where you can't file confidential personal information, dates of birth, social security numbers, all that stuff has to be redacted. If you start filing stuff that has medical records attached or authorizations, or you're saying who you're, who are treating providers, you're really, uh, you're really walking a dangerous line. Do not file that stuff. Okay. And when you're doing depositions and you're, even when you're serving a BP, you'll see in the example of the materials that I gave of our bill of particulars, we didn't even give the social security security number in the BP that we are sending just to defense counsel. We're not even filing it. Uh, we cite the basis for that, the legal authority for not giving uh, anything but the last four digits. So even in depositions, you know, you never give a full uh, number. You give it to them verbally in a deposition. You tell them, don't put it on the record. You can give it to them on the phone, um, uh, but don't put it down uh, anywhere where it can be a public record. Okay. Um, all right, when filing the RJI for PC request, there seems to be no necessity to file a good faith statement to request. It seems to be automating by checking it. I don't think you need to do any kind of good faith statement uh, to file a PC, that's why it's not there. And so just file for the PC and uh, file the RJI and you should be fine. Are there any situations where I wouldn't grant an extension of time? Nice question. Um, I can't recall not doing it. Uh, probably would be kind of what I talked about earlier, that if it's a situation where I'm getting totally blown off by the insurance company from day one, uh, they're not acknowledging anything from me. Uh, they're not uh, just being totally unresponsive from the get-go. And then um, the lawyer is the same, defense lawyer, and they reach out to me uh, or I'm following up with them and I'm sending them letters uh, and they're just totally blowing me off. And then they wait 60 days or something like that. You know, that's when I may say, go fly. You know, I'm, I've moved to for default and uh, we'll see you in court. You know, knowing that the default may not get granted, but if someone really pushes my buttons, it's just a matter of courtesy. The one thing that really, really annoys me is having to keep calling adversaries or adjusters, keep emailing them. I can't tell you how many times I've sent emails to an adjuster or an adversary saying, see below, this is my fourth email to you in the last month. I've been emailing you every week. You keep blowing me off. You're not answering my calls. Can you please extend a common courtesy of responding to me? Um, I hate when I have to do that, but I do that. So if I run into that situation and that lawyer wants an extension of time, Forget it. You you go make your make your motion to vacate the default. Um, I'm not going to give courtesies when they put me through the mill, but that's usually the only time. Um, again, someone's saying, "What do I do if a defense counsel puts an affirmative defense and they refuse to withdraw it? You move to dismiss it." Okay. Um, Thank you to all of you who are talking about the process in different counties on PC orders. Everybody check the Q&A. If you're not doing it, we should all scroll through this Q&A. Uh, there's lots of good feedback and answers, and I thank you all for sharing all of that. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, someone's asking if I can give some guidance on a new 202.20-D deposition of entities, which is New York's FRCP 30B6 equivalent as of February 1st. Wow, that is great news. Um, I'm gonna be talking about that in my depositions. The 30B6 tool is an amazing 
tool and I'm thrilled. I did not know this, that there's an equivalent of it. I'm gonna start using it immediately. Let me give you all a brief, brief, brief primer on Rule 30b6 depositions. Everybody look up Rule 202.20-D uh, that uh, we're being told now applies. Someone's asking if there's case law from the commercial part. Uh, where it has been the last few years. Hopefully, I'll check that if that is valid in all civil litigation and personal injury cases, I'll be using it forthwith. Basically, this is what a 30B6 notice is. Instead of just a normal notice asking them to appear for a deposition or produce items, what a 30B6 notice is, is you are listing and any side can do it. You are listing all the areas that you are curious about that you need an answer from, from your adversary. And you are putting that all in the 30B6 notice. You're listing, produce a witness or witnesses with knowledge of the following. One, two, three, four, five, six. So in my slip and fall on ice in front of a building case, I'm gonna put in all those. Um, who is in charge of clearing the sidewalk? What materials were given? Under what circumstances are they supposed to hose down? Uh, what are they, what kind of warnings are they supposed to give and put out? Put all that through there. And then when they produce a witness who doesn't know anything, they have to produce another witness until they can comply with producing a witness with knowledge of everything you wanna know. Either that witness has to have firsthand knowledge who they produce, or that has to be a witness who's made reasonable inquiries to get the information. So even if it's not the person who knows that you're supposed to put out salt in a cone that says warning, the person they produce for a deposition needs to find out the answer and come to the deposition and say, I personally didn't know, but I checked with our requirements in the building and this is what they're supposed to do, okay? So um, yeah, someone just said, sometimes you're gonna get six witnesses. It's a great tool and in federal court, we've even threatened sanctions when they produce a witness who not only knows nothing, uh, but who has failed to take steps. I've had that happen. I've given very thorough notices on my 30B6 of all the information. And when the witness goes on record, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I say, well, did you take any steps before this deposition to obtain this information? No, I didn't. Um, so defense counsel, if you get hit with a 30B6 notice, don't blow it off. Make sure you find your client, somebody who can give them the 30B6, say, go get answers to all of this. Go do your homework, investigate, because you're coming for a deposition and I'm going to get sanctioned unless you've gotten these. It's a great tool. It's a great way of getting the appropriate witness to answer your question. Sometimes as plaintiffs, we have no idea who the right witness is and it's only through a deposition after deposition that you're asking, well, who would know this? Who should I ask for? Well, I don't know, it could be someone in our uh, invoicing department. So that's a 30B6 uh, notice, all right? Um, I said, send the PC request once answers are received from all defendants. Um, while waiting for all defendants, is it a, is a best practice they have to appear for PC before all defendants have appeared? Am I aware of doing that? I don't recommend doing that because you can appear for PC, but then if you have a defense firm show up, they're gonna say, I wasn't there. I didn't even appear yet. I'm not bound by this PC. Uh, you know, I'll be ready when I'm ready, when I catch up. So 
as a practical matter, you really need to wait till you have everybody in. And most defense firms are not going to proceed with depositions and discovery uh, until everybody's involved and they're not going to present at a conference. And you may get a law clerk who's not too happy with you when they say, why are you here if you're still waiting on an answer? Did you move for default? What's going on with that answer? So, um, you know, that's generally how I would handle that. Um, okay. Courts have ordered us on several occasions to actually file discovery deficiency letters on the ECF in order to preserve the record for the court to rule. This has happened several times, has been a source of discussion. That's interesting. Um, look, if a court orders you to do something, you got to do it. Um, I don't like that. Uh, and um, I haven't seen that. It's something that we should talk about. I'll bring that up, Michelle. Uh, let's run that around our executive board and see uh, if we can get an answer to this. And maybe we okay. can put out a position statement because if judges are inappropriately asking lawyers to order this, uh, then we need to bring that to the administrative judge's attention and tell them to stop doing it. On the other hand, if it is appropriate and there is some authority that we're hearing about uh, and it's appropriate for a judge to order these deficiency letters, um, then let's find out what it is and we'll get back to everybody. The Academy will send out something on this, Michelle, if that's okay with you. Totally. Yeah. All right. See, we can get things done, folks. As a community, um, you know, 581 of you and me and Michelle, it's 583 of us are here right now. If these issues come up as an organization, the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers, we have some pull, okay? We just do because we're the biggest organization in the state right now doing this stuff. And so the judiciary wants to hear from us. We're involved in a lot of forums with judges. I sat in a lot with administrative judges, with other leaders of bar associations where they want from us, what can we do to make things faster, better, smoother? So when things like this come up, bring it to our attention like you just did in this CLE. It's another reason you should all be members if you're not already. Seriously, join the Academy. You're, it's a great, great organization. It's a resource. It's a way that, you know, I can't tell you how many times people email Michelle with a question. She says, oh, Lupin, Andrew, and so-and-so, they, they would know this. Or Lupin, this lawyer, and that lawyer, they would know it. Michelle knows everybody. She knows the best lawyers in all issues. And she'll, she'll get you these answers. And if there is something that you see out there that is, you know, consistently an issue like what about these deficiency letters this is something that michelle she calls her buddies in the court of appeals says hey can you fix this for me and they have to it so um just like that yes just like that. <laughs> but really we do have there's a uh, a source uh, a pipeline to get these issues dealt with so you know bring it to our attention and we'll do that all right a couple more minutes um all right, we're up to 84 questions, which is cool. I think I covered a lot of stuff, but let me um, see what else. Uh, a lot of the Q&As are actually people um, helping in and putting in really infer uh, good information. All right, I'm scrolling back. Bear with me for a second. Anything anyone has new, pop it in right now. And uh, I'm gonna look, I can look sort of down the list to the latest ones. Uh, the latest one I have is someone concurring on something I said. Uh, someone saying that uh, uh, the court said they would not discuss any issue related to deficiency unless the letter itself is laying out the deficiencies. Now, if you're in this situation, the only thing I can think of would be the equivalent in federal court is a meet and confer. 
And what that means is you're reaching out to the court and saying, I've reached out to my adversary and we have a dispute that we are not able to resolve amongst ourselves in that, you know, we've requested such and such and they've objected to it for several reasons. Um, we would like to address this with the court. Um, that may be what they're asking for is in essence a meet and confer. And that may be appropriate. What I'd recommend until we can get more of a whole cohesive answer for all of us is what you should do. The best practice, I believe, would be put as little information in that letter as possible about the true nature of the dispute, basically saying we have a dispute as to whether uh, we are required to disclose certain medical records being demanded by the defense, uh, something like that without getting into too many details, saying that you've tried to work it out, you are unable to, and what that means is you have to pick up the phone, folks, call each other, shoot an email back and forth. And so you could say, all right, are we just going to agree to disagree? Let's put it in a letter. We agree to disagree. Um, or if you get blown off by one, you could say I've attempted to reach counsel by phone call on these dates, by email on these dates. Um, that's a lot different than just putting up a letter saying plaintiff's counsel hasn't given us a bill of particulars, you know, and you're already six months into the case and the bill of particulars was served and you haven't even had the courtesy to reach out to me before filing that and you're filing a letter that's inaccurate. So that's what I have a big concern with, but, you know, use caution when you're filing these types of letters, okay? Um, I'm not seeing any new questions, so I'm going to give it, you know, a few seconds. Anything else for anybody uh, wants to ask? Oh, let's see. Uh, someone's asking about giving medical authorizations. Uh, do we give it to them uh, if it's something for a year before the date of incident, uh, or is it standard to give them a certain time frame? You got to give them more than a year because, look, each case is different. If you have a case where your client was in a car accident and had spinal surgery, but Six years ago, their back was bothering them. They went to a doctor and an orthopedic surgeon has a record that says recommending spinal lumbar fusion at L5S1, okay? I would tend to think that that's probably probative and the defendant would have a good argument to say, yeah, I know this was five years ago, but if they're recommending surgery five years ago at the same exact area that they just had surgery in this case, we're entitled to it. So each case is going to be different. In general, you're going to have to give it up. You're going to have to go pretty far back, uh, probably as far back as you can get records. I don't think you're going to find records probably more than a 10 years old, but if push comes to shove, I think most courts are going to agree that if it's at all related, um, you're going to have to give up those records. So I'd be prepared to give the authorization and give those records, okay? The last attendance verification code for those of you listening by a podcast today is POD422. POD422. But Michelle, and just to clarify, uh, in the <laughs> words of Marissa Tomei, it's a BS question. It's <laughs> a BS question. The number on B is. Um, 52 years is not accurate. My father has been practicing law now, I believe, for 56 years. Oh, we gotta, I got to update it. Podcast. It was 55 years in the law, and that was over a year ago. So, um, by the way, while we're talking about my dad, many of you know him. He's, he's the bomb. He's what we should all aspire to be in the way we carry ourselves as attorneys. Many, many of you have been kind enough to send me emails afterwards with stories about my dad and sending regards. I really appreciate it. He really appreciates it. So keep them coming. If you're out there, you're a friend of my dad, you had an interaction with him as a young lawyer or an older lawyer, 
drop me an email. Uh, I'll share it with them. That's very cool stuff. And we appreciate it. Let's all continue to stay in touch. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next CLE. Reach out to me as you have been doing. Uh, I've been referring cases. The lawyers will acknowledge that to lawyers on these CLEs. I've gotten some referrals. We've just workshop cases, ideas, issues. Uh, it's a great thing and I want to keep it going. So please always reach out to me. I can be reached at a smiley at smileylaw.com at the information above. And, uh, if you like the CLE, please let others know about it. Come back for more. And um, if you like the podcast and you're listening to it, please share it, like it, give it a good review and share it with your uh, students, colleagues and friends. 